Do please take a seat. Your hat and coat, and they'll be safe right here. Quite a downpour out there. Oh, wait, wait, don't cast... <laughs> no, 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 it, it's fine. But let me get you a towel instead. You see, the folks down here, they're trying to escape magic. Or at least to pretend for a few hours that it doesn't exist. In any case, we have a fine selection of imports from the Grey. Can I offer you a Coke or a Budweiser? What'll it be? Welcome to The Secret Cellar. My name is Jason Robinson, and I'll be your host on this show. Tonight, I want to do two things in the time we've got together. First, a session zero of sorts. Creation of characters, establishment of backstory, beginning a new narrative. Let's chat a bit about what this place is and why it is, so you have some idea of whether this is where you want to be. Second, you'll be meeting one of the regulars, my dear friend Ian Smith a fellow Vizlay, and a game designer. We'll be chatting a bit about Invisible Sun through the lens of user experience and game design. So, session zero. What is this all about? The Secret Cellar is a podcast about modern storytelling. Me being who I am, this will undoubtedly involve a lot of talk about tabletop role-playing games, especially those from Monty Cook. But I'm also interested in looking at story in a broader context. Why do we tell stories? How do we do so? What effect do they have on us? I have brilliant friends who tell stories through art, photography, fiction, story slams, and I hope to bring them on the show as well. That said, there is a decidedly nerdy element to this whole thing. Look around you. This is The Secret Cellar, a hidden speakeasy tucked away beneath Zero's bar, a very real entity in the very imaginary world and lore of Monty Cook's game Invisible Sun. The Secret Cellar is a liminal place halfway between Invisible Sun's vivid magical city of Saturine and the possibly less magical city where you are right now. It's like I'm recording a podcast in Lucy's wardrobe, one foot here and one in Narnia. As such, it's a perfect place for us to get cozy and chat about the stories which bridge our worlds. You may hear me talk about the gray or shadow, that's where you and I are, or indigo or the actuality, that's the magic place. You shouldn't need to know too much more about the lore of Invisible Sun to enjoy at least the interviews in this podcast. That said, the longer you linger in each episode, the nerdier it will get. You've been warned. I guess the final thing I should say is why I'm doing this. In part, these past two years have been difficult on many levels. The world seems darker now than it was, or perhaps I'm just more aware of it. At some point, I realized I need to start creating rather than only consuming, and this is the fruit of that. I hope to make a tiny piece of art that fosters wonder and welcome and joy. A book that I love is Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore by a writer that I love, Robin Sloan. In that book is a quote that I love. I will admit that I just want an excuse to put all my favorite people in a room together. So we'll form a consultancy, a special ops squad for companies operating at the intersection of books and technology, trying to solve the mysteries that gather in the shadows of our digital selves. This podcast is my consultancy. There are a few people I'd like to thank. John Gruber, a writer and podcaster who's informed a great deal of my thinking about what it means to think and communicate, and has stoked my passion for excellence in craft. 
Dr. Scott Robinson and Dave Hanlon of the Incantations podcast, which helped me to understand and fall in love with Invisible Sun in the first place. And an extra special thanks to Darcy Ross and Troy Pitchelman and their Cypherspeak podcast. Earlier this year, they posted a show in which they admonished anyone out there who was thinking about creating something to just get out there and do it. It felt like that episode was being brandished at me like a pointy stick, and it got me moving. Finally, heaps of love and thanks to the Monty Cook Games team. Thank you for your creative work, but also for prioritizing excellence and dignity in the community you've built. Now, for our first segment. The bartender really doesn't want me casting spells in here, but this one I must. Vizla's Call, the featured interview for today. I'd like to introduce you to Ian Smith. So, Ian Smith, what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, tonight I am drinking a, a Rusty Screw, which is a variant on the Rusty Nail. Uh, it is a Kentucky bourbon with uh, Drambuie. Uh, so, Rusty Nail is usually scotch with Drambuie. Drambuie is a, a liqueur der- derivative of scotch. Um, so, this is the American take on that with bourbon. That sounds absolutely delicious. I did not have any bourbon in the house tonight. I have some Tennessee whiskey, however, that is double aged in, you know, oak casks. So it's very woody. And uh, I made an old fashioned out of it, including some new orange bitters that I just got, which I like very much. So it's got excellent splash of orange bitters and a splash of Angostura bitters. It's quite pleasant. That's fantastic. I discovered a whole store that sells almost nothing but variants of bitters. Uh, the other day that was a little mind-blowing to me curse you and your city i love (laughs) i love my small town but i do miss cities sometimes i'm very excited and honored to have you as the first guest on this podcast well i am exceptionally honored to be invited it's it's gonna be fun thank you uh tell tell me and our listeners a little about you and what you do uh sure I'm a game designer primarily. Uh, I work in online social games as a producer, uh, and I've been a developer as well. I've kind of worn as many hats in the industry as I possibly could fit on my head, but game design has always been my passion and and what I sort of weasel my way into doing regardless of what my actual <laughs> job title says. So, And it's also my hobby, what I do on the side. So That's great. And what is your connection to Invisible Sun? Uh, well, I have been a fan of Monty Cook for uh, quite some time. I got into Dungeons and Dragons just shortly before third edition came out. So I got a taste of the old world and then to jump into third edition when it was fresh and had a completely new design sensibility. You know, there was some funky campaign settings floating around at the time. It was still kind of trying to get its legs. But uh, I remember reading a couple of interviews with Monty Cook at the time that what he was saying about his vision for D really resonated with me. And then uh, from then on out, I just kind of been following his work. I picked up a fair amount of Malhavik press, which was his old press over the years. And then since the Numenera cipher system kind of era, I've been paying a little bit more attention again, kind of came back into it and very, very much enjoyed the process of the Kickstarter for invisible sun. It was a very well done and entertaining process the whole way through. I wanted to talk with you tonight with your background in game design and my background as a user experience design -er, (laughs) about Invisible Sun kind of through those lenses. And specifically, you and I attended PAX together in 
2017. Mm -hmm. And we both sat in together on a lecture about engagement theory. And I found some of that conversation really kind of interesting for my thinking about this. So I wanted to revisit some of that and then ask you for some of your perspectives on it. Yeah, How does that, sound? that sounds great. Cool. So specifically, this was a lecture by a gentleman named Benjamin Ellinger, and he worked at the Japan Institute, which is kind of a, you may know more than I, it's a game design school. Uh, yeah, more development, but they do, they recently started a, a focused game design program within the last, I don't know, four or five years, I think. Oh, very cool. Um, I found him fascinating. He was talking about engagement theory, the study of what makes human experiences engaging. And it could be applied to lots of things. Obviously, his slant was toward game design. But he had one particular section of his talk where he spoke about elegance. We use that word in conversation to mean all kinds of things. But he had a very precise definition of what elegance is and kind of how it can be weighed, you know, mm -hmm. in the context of game design. And, um, and that really stood out to me because it resonated a lot with the kinds of things we talk and think about in user experience design. Yeah. Um, is that, is that a term that you had run into from your own, you know, your own background or? Yeah, actually the, the place that I've come across that term the most is when I was a, a software developer and you talk about elegance and code, right? Where there's always, mm -hmm. there's always a, a brutal long hacky way to do things but when you can come up with something that's just a few lines and achieves the same outcome you know that that's what developers talk about being elegant code you know when you get that really tight sure. efficient readable code you know as opposed to just being like a wall of text that would take somebody else a week to parse through so yeah yeah very much but he spoke about he defined elegance specifically as a ratio of depth over complexity and he was talking about possibility spaces in games so if you're designing a game and you want to make it uh, an interesting experience with options available to the player going forward there's all kinds of layers and features and complexity you can add to the rules of the game some of those things are going to make the game very much more interesting either experientially or strategically um and then others are like layers of complexity you might add which actually don't make the game more <laughs> rich or interesting or fun they just make it more complicated and obviously you want to optimize for the former but he put this really cool graph which was just a simple line going upwards from the lower left to the upper right and the vertical axis over on the left was a representation of depth in terms of how deep or how interesting a game experience was. Right, the richness of the game. Yeah, what's the possibility space? What is available to you in terms of... Meaningful play experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that translates into either replayability or uh, just enjoyment that you derive from it. And then the other axis, of course, was complexity. And he drew this line right up the middle. And he started with, you know, one point nestled very much down in the corner that was like tic-tac-toe and tic-tac-toe is very simple to learn and it's also not super super rich <laughs> so you know an eight-year-old right. could learn to play tic-tac-toe but then before before they turn nine <laughs> yes before before they turn nine they will have mastered it and there's not really much to do anymore and then on the other extreme he put Eve Online, I'm actually going to sub that for our conversation with tabletop role-playing games as a broad category, which is like 
on the same line, perfectly diagonal up from the corner, this it takes a lot of investment to dig into a tabletop role-playing game and kind of understand what's going on and how to play, and there's statistics and character sheets and whatever. But many of the people listening to this podcast will agree that what you gain from that is a really rich experience with lots of possibility that, you know, can't be easily replicated in maybe any other medium. And then the example he gave on the other end is something like Go or chess, where, you know, your nine-year-old can learn the rules of the chess game and then spend decades <laughs> trying to perfect the strategy and the richness of what it means to play chess. Right. So that's that, that concept of elegance in a technical sense is depth over complexity and how do you add just the depth needed in order to get a really rich experience. He summarized it very well. He said, uh, you purchase depth with complexity. Mm, yeah. And over time, you get to be a better negotiator, right? Like you're, you're better at including less complexity in order to get even more and more depth out of it um, at kind of a reduced cost. So that's the basic background concept that will kind of set the tone for what we want to talk about. You mentioned that transition from D&D into third edition, um, which Monty Cook played a role in. Can you tell me a little about what that looked like to you through this lens? Um, sure, yeah. So Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was um, uh, very complicated compared to you know what we think of as D&D today. Just there, all the classes worked a little bit differently. There was a lot of like really counterintuitive, you know, uh, sometimes you wanted to roll over a number, sometimes you wanted to roll under a number, just depending on the circumstance. There was whole subsystems for like climbing walls and stuff like that that just like didn't jive with anything else. It was a completely separate table mm -hmm. that you had to roll on. And uh, yeah, there was just a lot of um, a lot of really strange one-off rules i think is the the main thing that characterized advanced dungeons dragons in my experience at least was just that the, it didn't feel like there was a whole lot of cohesion there was each class or idea kind of had it had a little orbit of rules around it but there wasn't a through line through the entire game right so what what was D D 3.0 relative to all of that sure so coming into three they made a a really hard push to bring things into at least the same language, right? So you have classes and all the classes work basically the same. They do different things. They get different features, but they're all going to have, you know, the same one to 20 progression. You're going to talk about them in the same, uh, same terms as far as, you know, s skills and feats and things of that nature. It was, it was just all of the classes were built out of the same template instead of being one-offs. And, really they brought a lot of that uniformity to the monsters as well which again in uh Dungeons and dragons is, was all over the place dnd 3.5 is when i really got into gming and then a, you know a few years went by and then i kind of stumbled into what for me was numenera um and i know you've been a little closer to cypher system mm -hmm. but usually i get into a game primarily through its artwork and kind of through its aesthetic first and numenera is not my seen aesthetically um but i read a little about it um and i just i fell absolutely in love with the system that undergirds numenera and the strange and cipher system because some of the precisely because of it as a ux thing it's really really brilliant in terms of a lot of the way it streamlines um and optimizes for 
a lot of the things this community talks about all the time, right? Forward motion in story and player agency and um, kind of simplification in some areas in order to buy momentum in others. Right. Well, and that's the tabletop gaming is always a little difficult to talk about because there's an element that can't ever be encapsulated in the rules, right? Like you could get together mm-hmm. with, you know, a couple of friends and tell a story to each other, right? Like that could just happen without any dice, without any mechanics, right? You sure. could just sit down and write collaborative fiction effectively. That piece of it can't really be captured in rules. So the right. function for tabletop gaming for the rule set is to scaffold that, right? To create situations to inspire players to um, just create the as good of conditions, as fertile of a bed for stories as possible, right? Mm, exactly. So yes, that yes. those stories come naturally and you find people who wouldn't who wouldn't think of themselves as necessarily creative or storyteller type people emoting and and you know having their own stake in the story and inputting into it. And that's it's really just a um uh, yeah, it's just a support system for storytelling, right? It, it is it is the framework that you tell the actual story over. It's a great, great way to think of it. Yep, exactly. I was actually just listening to an interview with Monty Cook today, and, you know, he, he expressly stated, you know, from the beginning, I wanted to build a system that allowed for combat as part of the world, but really, you know, allowed it to be moved through quickly so that you could get back to the story. He was talking about Numenera specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but two useful mechanical examples from Numenera, just to encapsulate it. One is, you know, famously, Cypher System doesn't ask the GM to roll any dice. That gets offloaded to the players. Mm-hmm. So they're handling that, which allows the GM to just stay focused on telling the story. Um, and then specifically about combat, you know, <laughs> I, I love this system, although if what you love about tabletop role-playing is getting into the nitty-gritty of combat, this might drive you nuts. But, like, in the Cypher system, all weapon damage gets categorized as eh, light, medium, heavy. Great, done. So, you know, there are systems out there that have charts and charts and charts of, like, historical weapons and, you know, some really, really interesting mechanics with different combinations of dice to get different probabilities. And that is really fun. It's not that that's a bad thing, but back to that concept of elegance... If what you're optimizing for is really, really digging into the details of that mechanical combat, this might not be the thing for you. But in Numenera, it's great because if I'm telling a story and there's a combat, (laughs) you can have any kind of weapon in the world and I can very quickly just know without having to look it up how much damage it's going to do and move on and keep going with the story. Right. So again, there's the the piece of tabletop gaming that is about uh scaffolding the story in the piece that's about you know engaging the player and and modeling the world right and i think that uh i think that in third edition they got pretty much all of the um they got all of the depth with much less complexity they just got a better deal right Mm -hmm. i don't think they lost anything Mm -hmm. I think when you go to like a Numenera cipher system, I think you do lose. I mean, you necessarily lose some of the modeling, right? We are less yes. accurately reflecting the world as far as the statistics and the, you know, the the crunch of the game goes. Uh, but yes, absolutely. The the ratio just goes off the charts because it's still I mean, the whole it's such an open ended, such a fluid uh, 
game that's so optimized for, you know, the, the, the entire purpose of the person running the game is to tell the story. Like, like you said, we offload the dice rolls, we simplify the things, we, you know, we rate things from one to 10 for difficulty. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's about story and just doing basically the bare minimum statistics to keep the story flowing so that's that's a a good background on this whole concept (laughs) um you've talked about how monty cook has shown this evidence in his career with the example of of kind of his involvement with the game design of of dnd 3 uh third edition and and then it's obvious to me as a ux designer that he is someone who knows how to create a simple system and an optimized system and a streamlined system and sees value in that and cares about it so my big question, as I started digging into uh, Invisible Sun, I was struck by <laughs> by how much more complex Invisible Sun is as a system, like vastly, than something like Cypher System. Yeah. Um, and so I start, started asking the question, why? Like, okay, for this person who knows how to simplify, why is he then intentionally, very intentionally, swinging the other direction and making complex systems again? Right. So that's what I want to talk about right now. How authentic would a gray haven be if it didn't include moments of beauty being interrupted by people trying to sell you things? Now a word from our sponsor. Actually, I don't have any sponsors, because as of this recording, this show has one listener. So this week I'm donating this slot to Lawful Good Gaming. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity of joining a wonderful online Numenera game hosted by James Walls on behalf of Lawful Good Gaming. This is an organization who asks people to volunteer their time running games, including other folks who then make donations to a specified charity. In my case, it was the Southern Poverty Law Center. Several of us got together, pitched in a little bit uh, of a donation, and over the course of the evening, I think our group raised around $70 for SPLC in exchange for having a wonderful evening together. It was truly delightful, I highly recommend it, and I would commend you to take a look and see whether you might contribute either running games for them or just joining someone else's game. If you have a product or service or podcast or website or Twitter account, or anything else that you think would be worth promoting to a crowd of self-selecting, curious, intelligent, creative folk, also incredibly well-dressed, I might add, this podcast is a great place for it. In the upcoming week, my slot is going to cost a dollar. If you have a dollar and you'd like to place an ad on this podcast, please email me at secretseller at zeros.bar. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. For this person who knows how to simplify, why is he then intentionally, very intentionally, swinging the other direction and making complex systems again? So that's what I want to talk about right now. What are are your initial thoughts on that? It's important to note that, um, you know, complexity by itself is not a bad thing, right? It's all about the ratio. It's about the value that you're getting when you're buying depth with complexity. So um, when... You know, if you're, if you're getting the value that you're getting out of the cipher system, like that ratio, at any point in the scale, you know, it's good value still, right? It can be a much more complex game, but if you're maintaining that, that you know, that depth per rule <laughs> kind of uh, yes, right. ratio, then, yep. then you're still, it's still elegant, right? Uh, it's just bigger. 
you know and um so i think that when i mean i I had the same reservations when first looking at the rules for invisible sun because it's very big (laughs) it's there's just a lot more game there like there's a lot more game there and and i mean even when we're looking at the playtest documents which were just a i mean a fraction of what they're actually intending on shipping in the package you know um it still felt very very large um yes so um it's interesting because one of the uh one of the ways as a game designer you have to mitigate complexity is to latch onto something that somebody already knows, right? Like you, um, mm-hmm. if I make an abstract board game uh, and it's just like a set of rules on a sheet and, you know, I try and get somebody to learn it and it's just like, you know, little black cubes on a grid, it's going to be pretty hard to get people to like sit down and learn the rules and understand it and, and finally get to the point where they're competent enough to play it that it's fun, right? But if you if you wrap it in a fiction, you say, well, these black cubes are actually, you know, they're questing knights, you know, after the Holy Grail. And, you know, you 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 link these things in. Well, this one can go faster because he's on a horse. Clearly, you know, like um, then because that it follows the model that people already have in their brain, it gives them something to hook into. They will look past the complexity right. um, because they they can just graft it onto something. Um, so sure. you you want to use the resonant images you want to like when you're designing a game it's really important to me to find you know the to make sure that the theme fits and what is compelling Mm -hmm. about the theme is reflected in the rules and you know um just have a really good um synchronicity there uh the oh his name is escaping me right now but the um game designer of plants versus zombies is that george fan yes thank you um tells a really amusing story about how like he had the basic game lined up and he had, you know, a large slow moving force of attackers and that's zombies. Like clearly that's the best metaphor you can have. And we have stationary attackers and they're stationary. So we'll make them plants. And you know, there's, there's no natural antagonism (laughs) of plants for zombies, but you get it right away. They're plants. They can't move immediately. (laughs) And you have zombies that are a very slow impinging force. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just really strong yeah. metaphors that made that game super compelling just right out of the box, you know. Um, so wrapping this all back to Invisible Sun, uh, there's a pretty intentional decision not to do that, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. there's a, you know, we're told we're mages, but you're not Gandalfing your way through the Invisible Sun, mm-hmm. you know, you're right. It's and you're not even like elmenstering you know this isn't a dnd analog either you know like there's uh (laughs) it's just a very very different take so even though it's a a familiar concept like oh yeah you're you're wizards but you know that doesn't mean what you think it means and it's all all through this very different filter both from a mechanical standpoint and then also from the lore standpoint there's enough different things going on that you don't even have that easy handhold to to grasp onto anymore I mean, even 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 the most wizardy of our orders, which are the Vances, are not called wizards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if 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 you if you want something familiar, our Vance is kind of like a D and D wizard, the closest you get. But like, you know, that that's not what it's called. <laughs> so that's yeah. It was you're right. It's a very intentional decision to not use that as a way to 
give people handles on complexity. Right. right. So if they're not, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about, because my initial impression too was like, wow, this is a lot of game. <laughs> but there's a few other handles that Monty Cook is giving to people to make this easier and finding intentional ways to offload that complexity or mitigate that complexity and give you a better discount <laughs> right. on the complexity that you purchase. Um, there's several of those things. And a lot of it has to do with um, the physical form factor of the game. Um, unlike you know, Monty Cook was actually very uh, an early sort of innovator in terms of providing games via PDF and kind of in electronic formats right. where you could really cheaply and really easily purchase this really thoughtful linked complete PDF that really serves as a valuable reference that allows you to sit there with your iPad and nothing else and jump into a game, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something they understand. But this very intentionally went another direction, right? It's a huge, complex, lavish, <laughs> expensive game that you're expected to get together with people, sit at a table face-to-face, -face, and play. Not that you're not allowed to play it or can't play it online, but it's going to be hard because a huge, as one example, you know, Numenera or Cypher System, you've got three stats, basically, right? For mm -hmm. strength and, you know, might and speed and in in intellect. Um, and in Invisible Sun... Not only are there more stats, but there's like whole systems of stats that kind of layer and fold and unfold on themselves. Right. You know, there's lots going on. But if you're playing this as a physical game at the table, if you've watched any of the live streams, like it's really cool because the players have these pools marked on their character sheets, which are not a box that you write a number in and then erase the number and then increment or decrement or add another number. It's like a big circle or, or box or something on the character sheet that is just a place for you to keep your tokens and then mm -hmm. when you spend one you toss it back to the middle of the table or move it to another box and that's a great example of if you decide from the beginning that the assumption is that you're playing this at table with objects in front of you then you can afford to have much more complex systems without slowing down the game because you know, moving physical things around is way less intense than doing math and rewriting numbers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, plus it keeps your character sheet looking nicer. I hate, you know, you, you your yes. D and D character <laughs> up to level twenty, and it's just a mess of erased and rewritten and scrawled notes and whatnot. Um, no, I really, exactly. I really love the physicality of it. The, um, uh, the tokens definitely, and it always makes me, I, I can't believe that this wasn't one of the stretch goals that they added to the Kickstarter campaign because it just makes me want like a Mancala style board like you know the flat wooden board with like the little rounded scoops so you can just scoop out oh, a handful at once like I want I want oh, that totally like like my character sheet to slide into that and that to be my pools right there maybe I'll make one I don't know <laughs> to anyone who's listening who's like a woodworker or stoneworker <laughs> like File this away. You've got a, a big community of people who are obviously nerdy enough to spend money on their <laughs> games. So, um, but yeah, the, it, it goes to like the. Um, I love the way the um, the Testament of Sons, you know, is such a mm. a giant. It's not like oh, this is a special card, so we're going to set it over here. It's like a separate resin statue that holds the card up vertically, and you know, yes. the center of the table is just such a. It's over the top in a way, you know, it's just it's it's, oh, it it's is. amazing, though. <laughs> like because it's such a because that does define a whole era for whatever story you're telling. So it's a different experience, really. It is certainly more complex and certainly not using the tools that we've come to expect 
but it is using a different set of tools and is looking for a very different feel at the table. And I think focusing on the table, you know, I mean, I think that um, as there's been more, you know, roll 20 type uh, solutions out there, it's incredible for people who don't have access to a ready, you know, role playing group, um, don't have a local table to go to, or even people mm-hmm. who have moved across the country. And, you know, I, I, there's, I have people who live in other states that I would love to game with again. And if it's going to happen, it's going to happen through roll 20 or something like that. Um, exactly. But I feel like Invisible Sun brings a really big focus back to the physicality of being at the table with these other people. One thing I've heard him say is that it's really intended to be like a celebration of the time that you can get together with mm. your friends face to face and do this. And so, and that was part of the, the thinking with development mode, right? Is on the one hand, this whole thing is built around, you know, the understanding that in modern life, like, man, we're busy and we have families and like, you know, work and life and things and getting together is really hard. And so development mode is really built to allow you to like carry on the story in the little like cracks and crannies of real life in between the times you can get together. But by the time you actually get your, you know, three or five friends together face to face in one block of time around one table, like, man, what how rare and precious and beautiful is that time? Mm-hmm. And so let's let's take that and optimize for enriching that like physical experience and and present experience in a way that uh, you know that that you can't you can't do that when you're you know skyping someone <laughs> you know you you can't be in the in the room with them. And so I, I love that kind of thinking. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So there's two other offloadings that I wanted to talk about in terms of, you know, getting a better deal on our complexity. Um, and one, which I have to say has has blown my mind in my own experience of kind of jamming the game in beta. But you can see this if you've watched um, the, the live play from One Shot RPG. Um, Darcy, who works for Monty Cook Games, although this was not a Monty Cook Games project, um, she had a Kickstarter for uh, a series called A Woman with Hollow Eyes that she made um, in partnership with James D'Amato from One Shot RPG. And um, it's this epic, sprawling, you know, first season that they just completed. Um, but she and her players really, really leaned into the use of the Sooth deck mm. um, as a way to kind of flavor their story. And, you know, the Sooth deck is this deck of 60 cards, they're round cards. They're, it's very inspired by tarot. Um, each one has, you know, some mechanical notes on it. You know, each card has a number and some other things that it does in the game. But the centerpiece of the card is uh, every card is named and then has a beautiful piece of artwork that is just creepy and beautiful and mysterious and evocative. One thing I've heard Monty Cook talk about is he really wanted magic in this world to not feel like a system you could just master. Um, he always wanted this feeling that magic, you can grow in power with your magic, but there's a certain sense where it is always a little beyond your control and a little mysterious. And so on top of that is this really, really beautiful level, which I think is (laughs) the most perfect example of adding richness at a very, very low cost. It's so brilliant. Um, Which is, if you want to, you can choose to have the GM or even the players interpret the artwork on these cards 
as they're played. And so one thing that a Women with Hollow Eyes crew did a lot is a card would be played and they would look and they would go, oh, you know, that card we associate with this meaning very relevant to our players and the story that has developed. And so we think that what's about to happen should actually be really terrible because, you know, we had this plan, but we just right. drew, you know, like the, dark uh, the nemesis yeah. of... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then they would all sort of workshop together to figure out <laughs> which direction the story just got yanked because of the artwork on the card, much more than the mechanics. Right. It's very abstract <laughs> right. and evocative, right? Like, it's like, right. what does this mean? Yep. What, how how do these things connect? So um, I think even at a subconscious level, even if you're not explicitly going out to try and interpret your story through that, it will flavor things and it will affect, you know, the play at the table. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. What I found in in GMing way more than I expected to based on just having read the rules as a dry mechanic. Um, you know, the story at my table really felt like it came alive and became its own creature separate from me or the players in a way that, um, that I haven't, uh, I mean, we all experience that cause we want that out of our games, but this took it to a whole other level. Really. It didn't feel like any extra complexity at all. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to, Come back to the point about um, magic being unknowable, right? Like, it's not formulaic. It's not a simple system that is, you know, between pages 176 and 392 in the player's mm -hmm. handbook. You know, it's, it, it, there are... I think that Invisible Sun does a really nice job of layering in a lot of variables that, you know... Mm -hmm necessarily mean there's a lot of permutations a lot of outcomes right um it also a lot of interpretation in the descriptions of magic like there there's a few things like okay you know you get three minis you know like that happens but like most of the spells are really like uh not defined in a mechanical sense they're defined in a subjective sense mm -hmm. you know I think that it's funny that the minority is the order of the Vance. That's the very structured one because it's kind of like the flip <laughs> yep. side of like D and D where there's like, there's always some like wild mage or chaos mage or, you know, some like roll a D 20 and sneeze butterflies kind of class. But like, um, like, <laughs> and that's like the norm in invisible sun. And the exception is the, the order of the Vance where it's like, I throw a fireball. It does 66 damage in a 30 <laughs> foot radius, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally. So the the last comment that I wanted to make um, as far as a way to sort of mitigate complexity, um, I had a conversation with uh, Scott Robinson, and he was talking about his experience testing. Um, a specific thing he mentioned is, A, Invisible Sun in his experience has proven to be very robust, by which he meant, you know, he said, you know, when we first sat down as a table and we were trying to figure out what it meant to be a weaver because it's so hand wavy in the way that we were just speaking about at first we were all very nervous like i don't know if we're doing this right <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. maybe i'm not you know calculating this perfectly because it's not clearly defined and he said it was really unnerving until the moment where everyone just kind of went oh whoa hey this is really fun and <laughs> just sort of trusted the system to work and stopped worrying about it and then it really blossomed and became you know useful at the table and really fun um and and so he he said they kind of realized that although there's a lot of complexity the complexity throughout the game as a system is not 
so interwoven that if you decide you don't want to deal with something and you want to leave it out, or maybe you you use it somewhat incorrectly, <laughs> you're not going to break the whole system and it's not all going to come crashing down around you. Um, it really, it keeps working and it, it really is robust. Um, and and I think one of the things that I, I noticed at my table is the makers, for example, there's this whole complex system. If you want to craft something, there's like layers on layers of things that you go through in order to craft and it mm -hmm. might fail in all these different ways or it might succeed in these different ways. Um, and as a GM, I need to be familiar with the basic concepts of that, but I don't have to learn deeply what that whole system is because you're the maker at my right. table and you can be an expert in that. And it actually, I think, feels good in a way to be like, oh, you know, I actually know even more than the GM about the specifics of my particular system of magic mm -hmm. <laughs> because you're really entrusting the player to be the expert at the table. And that is adding complexity to the game as a whole, but it's not adding complexity to me telling the story. It's adding richness that gets born by the player who's carrying it. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting thing because that's down to the assumptions behind the system, right? Um, we brought that very same kind of thing up as a, one of the weaknesses of like a second edition D&D where every class worked kind of different and had different tables and did different things. But, mm -hmm. you know, it was the convention for early D&D that like the DM rolled all the dice and then it was only like slowly that they seeded some of those roles to the players to do and stuff like that uh, as far as attacking and whatnot. Um, but there was an, ex an expectation that like whoever was running the game knew everything and held everything in their mm -hmm. mind at once, you know, and that the players didn't have to really like grok everything necessarily because that, there, that wasn't their responsibility, really, you know, and um, I put a lot of weight on the uh, dungeon master that, you know, again, like we were talking about before, distracted from actually telling the story, you know, just being caught up in the logistics and the minutiae. Um, so here, when it is so modular and so like, you know, if you don't have someone from the Order of Goetica in your party, then that's just hand wavy. Like they exist in the world. You see them go by. Don't, they do. Yeah, don't have they to worry do about it. So many things, and you kind of wave your hand, and nobody <laughs> actually looks at the rules at all. You know, it's it's just kind of. Mm -hmm. it's, it's nice that it's um uh has a fluidity in that way where you you can get the the upshot without going deep, or you can, like you said, go deeper than the person who's actually running the game. You know, one other thing that is a little different from like. D&D 2.5 and Invisible Sun, which I think also helps make this work, is the fact that if you're looking at D&D 2.5, it's all pure mechanics. Whereas right. here, that's true, but it's also woven in with the lore in the game a bit. Like, oh, fundamentally, I as a Vance and you as a Weaver, we have different ways of seeing the world that are part of our character. Magic exists for both right. of us, but we have entirely different philosophies about it. And so it, it feels a little more appropriate that, of course, the way that you think about and cast magic is different from the way that I think about and cast magic for an in-game reason, aside from just the fact that, like, that there's just different rules. <laughs> so I right. think that that helps in a way, too, because it actually bolsters your sense of self as a character to be learning something different from the player next to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. We can kind of close, but you had brought up something the other day that I really 
loved. And I was wondering if you could just chat about it for a bit, which was this idea of investment regarding Invisible Sun. Sure. Yeah. So uh, like I said, I was I was definitely puzzled by some of the design choices initially. But I mean, the whole the whole package, everything about the physical setup at the table to I mean, the way that they're shipping the product in the black box, which is this like elaborate, ornate, kind of preposterous, you know, uh-huh. object, you know? <laughs> yes. um, to the fact that, you know, even, I mean, financially at the, looking at the Kickstarter where there, there isn't like a $10 PDF version of the game. No. If you were going to do this game, if you wanted to be a part of it, you had to buy in at you know, 200 bucks or whatever the lowest, you know, mm-hmm. level that got you the game was, you know. And they, they um, had some systems in place to kind of, encourage people to spread that around and say hey this isn't a thing for a person to buy this is a thing for an entire group to buy which is what we did come together everyone pitches in then they they found some Mm -hmm. ways to kind of support that way of thinking about it but there is no question it's an expensive game (laughs) right 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 i guess um and so all these things together kind of made me think about how in some ways i think investment is one of the core design tenets of invisible mm-hmm. sun like mm-hmm. that you you can't you can't access this game unless you're going to actually do the work and sit down and and chew into it and and get it so like when we were talking about the um the elegance uh equation before and then when we transitioned to talking about Invisible Sun and talked about how just how big it was, one of the things that was occurring to me just in the context of that conversation is that, you know, it's not it's not infinite, right? You can mm-hmm. get to a point where you're even if you're getting the best value in the world, you're not gaining more game because you're just running out of human space, right? Right. Like, yeah, totally. You, sure. can't, can, you can't like hold all of that in your head, right? In Vancian terms, your your brain is getting full and no more spells will fit. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that um I think that a lot of invisible sun is just like trying to push to see how far that extreme is in the same way that mm-hmm. uh Numenera cipher system is pushing the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Like let's let's get the absolute best value we can on everything. Let's get mm-hmm. the most depth for every mechanic we include. But don't you know shy away from including a lot, you know, like like let's right. push it. Let's see how how much we can get out of this and if you're if that's your design you can make assumptions about like all right you know i don't have to worry about this being like the the goal isn't to have a really awesome con ready you know 90 minute right. like box <laughs> game right like that's not that's not the goal like you, you'll do some version of that certainly but that's not the goal um the goal is to foster people who are willing to actually invest and again, this ties back to when we we're uh, talking about the ways that tabletop games are kind of unique because they're really a scaffold for mm-hmm. storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the thing that makes tabletop games really compelling is the agency and the be able, the ability to sit down and be a protagonist and yes. these epic stories that spans months or, or years mm-hmm. uh, with the same group of people or a rotating cast over time. You know. Mm-hmm. And from the other side of the table to be the the architect, you know, to be the person who's writing the world these people are experiencing in such a profound and personal way. I mean, that's the real sauce, right? That's oh, the, absolutely. That's the magic of tabletop gaming, you know, is is when you can get those um 
those really amazingly personal epic stories. And so this just maximizes it in some ways because we're not catering at all to the people who are looking for one shots or looking for, you know, crunchy mechanical throwdowns or anything like that. The the game is is optimized for the people who are willing to sort of digest and ruminate and get into this strange space that is invisible sun all the way and are willing to commit to being at a physical table where there's a six fingered resin hand chilling in the middle, <laughs> you know, like, totally. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a game that's all about investment at its core. And I find that really fascinating. It's just, uh, in some ways, tabletop gaming has become very commodified and this kind of bucks against it and says, no, this is, this is not a mass market piece so much as it is a like a bespoke, you know, like like crafted gaming experience. Well, you know, it, I wonder how much it ties. I, I just look at my own life, right? And like, you know, I am pushing 40. I'm almost 40 years old. Um, and you know, frankly, at this point in life, the equation is different in terms of investment, right? Like I have more money and less time, <laughs> which is true for a lot of right. 40 year olds than we all mm -hmm. were, you know, when we were like in high school and like getting together with our friends and hanging out all weekend, but didn't have any money. <laughs> and so right. it's kind of lovely that both extremes of that exist. Like I can plop down, you know, a, a very small amount of money and get, you know, the Cypher System core book and have just an incredible amount of opportunity available, very cheap, very ready to go, you know, whatever. I've, I've got this PDF and I'm set. <laughs> but then on the other right. hand, if I can only play once a month, which is more like my life now, might as well get together and make that a really, really rich experience. And so that's, I, I wonder how much of this also just ties to the demographic, demographic shift of like, as people who have been playing these games a long time, but are now older <laughs> and have you know more responsibilities but maybe more disposable income that this becomes an even more worthwhile way to slot this into your you know your gaming life kind of interesting yeah it's really audacious i mean that's oh it's it's ridiculous ridiculous uh props to the the monte cook games crew just for being willing to not discard this idea out of hand and actually like yeah Again, I, I'll reference their Kickstarter was one of the best Kickstarters I've ever oh, seen. And, um, brilliant. The, the the amount of work that they'd already obviously put into the game, the amount yeah. of thought that they put into how they were going to present it, yeah. how they were going to reveal, like, what, you know, this giant, like, again, it's huge, right? It, it's a giant game. Mm -hmm. And they did such a good job of feeding it in, like, digestible bites, you know, oh, yes. over the course of the campaign. Yep. It was just, it was very well done, very compelling. Cool. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's, it's an interesting question, you know, coming from, you know, my UX background, your game design background, for both of us, we immediately looked at the materials and then had all these questions, not, not concerns, really, but initial skepticism at some level of like, this is doing something different. <laughs> but by that time, Monty Cook had earned my trust as a brilliant designer. So my thought wasn't like, mm -hmm. oh, this is stupid. I'm going to throw it out the window. What is he thinking? It was like, wait, he's doing something weird that is not what I would have expected. Why? Right. What, what was going on there? And so it, it, but it's through this whole, you know, through this whole last year, I've been digging into those questions 
And my conclusion, especially after playing in the beta, is, you know, I, I absolutely believe that this will provide some experiences and some stories and some depth of character and depth of story that are just not what is optimized for in other games. And I think the, yeah. the fruit of that is going to be really lovely. And I, it's been really fun to kind of unpack <laughs> all the ways uh, from a game design perspective that Monty Cook set out to like reach for these huge audacious game design goals in the same way that the physical product is audacious and find yeah. ways to kind of um, make that possible and accessible through all these different strategies. Yeah, man, and nuanced. Like, I mean, this is, I don't, it's probably a whole different discussion, but just the surrealism as oh, an aesthetic yes. in gaming, it, you can't do that simply, right? Like, I mean, no. if you have a little bit of surrealism, it's just bizarre and you move on, right? Like, you have to, you really need to have, like, you need a whole ecosystem to support that. Like, yeah. uh, and and it, it does require that that extra measure of, of dedication, I guess, both from the person crafting it to make surrealism cogent and understandable, but also the people who are sitting down at the table and wanting mm -hmm. to, in, I mean, what is a structured fashion, still experience a completely mm -hmm. alien and utterly foreign world, you know? Right. Because it's one of those things, if you do it half-heartedly or if you do it poorly, everything's just going to become unmoored, right? Everything's just going right. to be strange and not relatable. And, you know, <laughs> so it's a very interesting challenge to say, what are all the strategic game design and story design and aesthetic design and tactile design what are all the pieces you have to put in place to make this rooted enough that you can still tell really gripping human stories that connect with people and where the structure of the game still mechanically grabs the story and pulls it out of people and moves things forward while at the same time having this preposterous surreal world where literally anything can happen <laughs> and how do you how do you marry right. those two um, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. It was lovely to spend time talking with you as it always is. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for hosting the show. I'm so excited to hear future guests and, and what all develops through this. So yes, as am I. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. Good night. Audio design for the secret seller is by Casey Ross. Secret Seller and Zeros Not Bar are not affiliated with Monty Cook Games. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow.